You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. That was really good. You guys did well. It's really good to be here with all of you. I love being a part of this church. I love seeing Dollar Club. You guys may not know all the details of Kyle just getting back from India. The dude hasn't slept in days. He's now got a month to try to flip his schedule back around. And I just love our team. I love what our church is doing all over the world. And Kyle's telling me he's seeing these wells all over uh, India that have Kingsway Christian Church and sometimes your names specifically on those wells. I'm just like, man, I love our church. I'm just so proud of our church. I just want to stop and give God the glory for all that he's doing in us. Amen. So cool. All right. So for those of you who are visiting, watching online, don't know anything about where we've been, here's what happened. Uh, sometime last year, we started thinking about what we want to talk about to kick off this new year. And we originally talked about, yes, preach it. We'd originally talked about um, doing a series on the Trinity. And a Trinity is a really big concept, biblically, theologically, doctrinally. It's heavy, it's important, it's crucial. And then as I started kind of writing the series, I just spent some time with God and I felt like this cry in my heart was, God, I need you to reveal to me how big you are and that's what I'm gonna communicate to the people. So what we've decided is basically over a 10 week or so span, we're gonna look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're not necessarily specifically digging into Trinity specifically, but we're talking about it at a broad level. And this sermon, the reason I'm saying all this is this sermon serves as the link between talking about the Father and the Son and now we're going to spend after this the next five weeks or so leading up to Easter specifically looking at the Holy Spirit and if that excites you you're going to want to be here and yet you will be frustrated in five weeks there is no way you can scratch the depth of the level of everything we need to say about the Holy Spirit but we're going to do our best in five weeks to cover five critically important areas now if you're new at this thing called faith This is going to get to some of the things you need to know. And this sermon will be the link between where we've been and where we're going. So without any further ado, let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you. Oh, God, be here in this place. Speak into our hearts and our lives. God, I pray right now for those who are visiting with us, they don't really know or understand anything about you. Everything they think about you comes from something a parent said, a friend said, a coach said, a somebody said in their life, and they just believe it and accept it because, well, it seemed to make sense. But as we dig into who you are today, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself. I pray that you would help us to come to grips with where you revealing yourself disagrees with what we think about you. And God, I pray that you would blow up any box that we've tried to contain you in and show us, God, just how big you are. And God, we love you. We praise you. Transform us by your word now in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's my question for you, and it's less about you. As normally I try to ask something annoying to make you think. Here's the question. Who is Jesus and why did he come? Who is Jesus and why did he come? Well, we've got lots of books to discuss that. And clearly in one sermon, I can't do justice to all of it, so I'm just going to try to break it down. And this is not a normal preaching style for me, but to four simple points. But the fourth point is where I wanna spend most of my time, so we gotta move so I can get there quickly, all right? So if you wanna write these down or download the app, you'll find all this on there or go back and listen later online. But here we go. The first thing I want you to know about why Jesus came Jesus came to bring God the Father to us. Jesus came to bring God the Father to us. And this will serve as the link between the last series as we get into the next series. Here we go. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In other words, God kept trying to reveal who he was, what he was like, what he wants to do in the world. By the way, 
That is what prophecy does. There is something called predictive prophecy where God predicts the future. But to prophesy simply means to communicate who God is, what's he like, what's his character like, and what's he doing in the world. So prophecy is bigger than simply predictive prophecy where God lets us know the future. Does that make sense? That's critical to understanding much of what the Holy Spirit does in and through us as we get through the next few weeks. In these last days, though, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Did you know you were living in the last days? Did you also know that doesn't mean what you often hear on the TV? The last days are not referring to the last few weeks or months or years before Jesus returns. The last days biblically refers to since the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension where Jesus goes up in heaven and all of the days between that and when he returns. We've been in the last days for roughly 2,000 years. I just blew some of your minds. Some of you are like, I don't even know if I agree with that. Google it later, all right? But this is a consistent biblical motif because there's not going to come a new revelation of Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says, if anybody comes to you and preaches a gospel different than the one that I gave to you, even if an angel from heaven comes to bring it to you, do not listen to them. There is no new revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation that we've been handed is the right one. And this is fascinating to me. Notice, and through whom he also made the universe. So Jesus is the creator of the entire universe. And because he came in body, we call that the incarnation, and he walked among us because he was faithful in every way, even unto death, and he ascended up into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of the Almighty in heaven, God gave him back the creation he created as a gift. So now he is Lord over all creation. Like, I just covered a whole bunch of Bible doctrine, really deep, heavy stuff in like five minutes. You should be proud of me. That normally takes me at least five weeks to cover that much ground. But notice this, and this is where I want to camp for just a minute. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That sentence right there. Literally, entire councils in church history have gathered. Uh, it's famous that Santa Claus, Saint Nick, punched a dude in the face over that verse. Now you really want to Google what I'm talking about. Look it up later. True story. However, this is critical for a few reasons. Number one, the word glory here, the word glory is the word doxa in Greek. It is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew word kabod that I told you about a few weeks ago in Isaiah 6, it has something to do with the weight or the burden. In other words, if God were to show up and release the full presence of himself among us, we would all be crushed under his weight. So God sent his son, his only begotten son. Begotten is a word we don't use today. It's in the King James translation of John chapter 3, verse 16, right? But most of us are NIV type people or NLT people. But begotten is far more accurate because begotten means he came out of the father. It doesn't mean one and only in the sense that we tend to think of one and only. It has to do with of the same substance, of the same material. And Jesus came in the full radiance of God's glory. 
And what I find fascinating, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that Paul tells us God sits in unapproachable light. And we see that over and over and over again. These angelic beings are hiding their face from the glory and the presence of God. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it in Isaiah 6. We see it in Revelation 4 and 5. Those three chapters, three books we looked at the last three weeks. Even in Exodus chapter 19, Moses later on in Exodus, he's like, can I see your glory? God's like, you can't handle this. And God hides and shows him just the entails of his glory because that's all that Moses could possibly take into his little brain and little body. Now that's critical because when Jesus shows up, he reveals through radiance. And the word radiance means exactly what you would think it would mean. It means brightness, beauty, light, being portrayed. And actually the, the, one of the definitions says bursting forth. So Jesus burst forth the glory of God in the exact representation of his being. And that is so critical because this word here literally means character. In fact, it is literally the Greek word, character. We actually get our word character from the word being represented here. And the word character in Greek originally referred to a tool that an artist would use to chip away, say, at stone to make something beautiful. And the idea is that that tool was called a character. Did you know that? Over time, that character, the same word was used because as technology changed, things changed, it would later be changed into different things, like when somebody was molding something or making something, and then later became actually the word for a stamp. So when you would take a stamp and impress it on something, and it was intended to reflect the character of the emperor or whatever it was. And that's the word the writer of Hebrews uses to say when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. He is the exact character of his being. And again, our word character in English carries some baggage that it doesn't necessarily carry here. The whole idea is you don't have to wonder what God is like. You just have to look at Jesus. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So after Jesus died and rose from the dead, he, he made a way to bring God to us. In fact, John says to John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. No one has ever seen God, no one. But Jesus, who was actually with God, himself, God, has presented him to us. All right, second thing. Not only did Jesus come to bring the Father to us, Jesus came to bring us to the Father. And what I wanna do for the rest of this message is I wanna look at one character, different kind of character, one person in the Bible, and a guy named Paul. Paul's name wasn't originally Paul. Paul's name was originally Saul. Saul means something like big. And Saul kind of thought of himself as big. Paul thought of, sorry, Saul thought of himself as somebody really important. And he was really angry the Christians were growing and thriving and surviving. And so Saul took it on himself to make sure that the Christian movement going around was going to be put out because he saw it as a threat to the, to the Jewish heritage, to the Hebrew faith. So he set out to do that. There was an early Christian believer named Stephen who was actually stoned to death and they took Stephen's belongings and they laid them at Saul's feet. And the reason they did that is because Saul is seen as a guy administrating, coordinating this thing in Stephen's life. Then we get to Acts chapter nine, and if you've never read it, we'll read a little bit of it. 
But Saul goes and he gets permission to arrest Christians in Damascus and have them thrown in prison. And all the Christians are afraid of him. They've heard the rumors about Saul. They're terrified of him. When we get to verse three, it says this. As he, the he is Saul, near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? First of all, I find it fascinating that we're told Jesus is the exact radiance of the glory of God. And as Saul is on his way to persecute the church, a light, the radiance of heaven, shines down upon him. Saul sees the light. He doesn't know what he's looking at. This isn't like an old Monty Python movie where there's like this Jesus character with a moving head talking or something like that, right? And Paul's walking along the road with his coconuts or something. I don't know. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and trust me, you're better off for it. But anyway, (laughs) this is a moment where Saul is being revealed a glimpse into heaven. And notice it comes through radiance, through light, because Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. But Jesus didn't just come to reveal the Father. Jesus came to call Saul to himself. And Saul gets it. Like Saul's a scholar of the Old Testament. He knows what's happening is radical and special and only a few have ever had this type of experience. And his response in verse five is, who are you, Lord? Notice the question mark at the end. Are you the Lord speaking to me? Am I having one of these moments? And he doesn't exactly say this in this moment, but if you read the rest of Saul's writings and he's got lots of them in the New Testament, We've got Corinthians and Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians. I mean, the list is huge. He wrote most of the New Testament. You can get a really good feel for Paul, his growth as a believer, his perspective on God. It's all there. It's not hard to figure out. But he looks up, he's probably thinking pretty full of himself in this moment. I'm awesome. Like, I'm about to have one of these moments that Ezekiel and Elisha and Moses and all these guys have had. This is because I am awesome. I am faithful to the Lord, and this is what he's doing for me. And then the voice answers, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, that's fascinating, because Saul never persecuted Jesus. Saul persecuted the church, which tells you something about what Jesus in heaven at the right hand of the Almighty thinks about you. I wonder if you had your God's perspective on your identity rather than your perspective on your identity, how it would change how you live. Throughout these next five weeks, I'm gonna get into that. We're gonna do one week on this idea of temple and that God's dwelling place is in the believer, fully surrendered to him. So much so that Jesus can look at Saul and actually say, that's me. That's my body that you're arresting and persecuting. Well, this freaks out Saul, as you can imagine. He fell to the ground. Sorry, he's already on the ground. Look at verse six. Now get up, Jesus says, and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. You will be told what you must do. It's not up for debate. Saul, you are going to do this. Saul's on the ground, and the people around him, the men who are with him, 
have a different experience of God. And I find this fascinating. I've been reading um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe series. We're in The Magician's Nephew with my kids. And man, C.S. Lewis just brings this stuff alive. It is amazing. And he talks about the first time, if you've ever read it, the first time that they meet Aslan. And Aslan represents Jesus. And the first time they meet Aslan and the people just start to come alive in his presence and trees start to come alive and he's just growing everything. It's just this amazing moment, right? Except some of the people with him don't have eyes to see and don't have ears to hear and they hear the same thing, they see the same thing, but they walk away with a different impression. And C.S. Lewis nails it because in this moment, that's exactly what happens. There are men with Saul, they don't see the light. They only hear the voice. They can attest to everything that was said. And I love that because God left even evidence of the fact that Saul had a reason to have a changed life. But only those who desire to see God will see him. And in this very moment, Saul goes into the city and he's blind for three days. He has something like scales over his eyes. The men had to lead him there and he fasted. He didn't eat or drink anything. And then the Lord goes to a man named Ananias and he says, Ananias, I want you to go over here. You're gonna find a guy named Saul. He's gonna be perfectly ready for you. Here's what's gonna happen. And God and Ananias have to have a conversation. But that leads us to our third point and we're almost to the fourth one. But here's the third thing. Not only did Jesus come to bring the Father to us, not only did Jesus come to bring us back to the Father, Jesus came to bring the Father to others through us. And this is critical for you to understand Jesus is in heaven reigning in the right hand of the majesty of the Father. He's seated on the same throne the Father is seated on. And so the way that he gets done his will on earth is through you. So he goes to Ananias and he says, Ananias, you need to go and you need to tell him. And Ananias argues. I can't, I, Lord, come on. I've heard about this guy. I know what he's done. I know the threats that he's made. And Jesus responds to Ananias in Acts 9 verse 15 says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, pep talk over. <laughs> See, this is where, I, I, I have a love hate for Facebook, I do. Because Facebook can do a lot of great things. But one of the things it does that's not so great is it puts a lot of lies out there about God. Like, here's what we get on Facebook. Oh, whatever, I'm having a rough day or whatever, whatever, whatever. We, we make up memes and we make up like things. We make up quotes from people that sound really good. We go reach into history from somebody who had no connection to God the Father through Jesus Christ who had this profoundly deep thought and we grab it and we put it on this beautiful picture in the background and we put it on Facebook and we say to each other, yeah, you keep going, girl, you go. You go, boy, come on, don't quit, right? You got this, like, you go. Like, what if God is saying, don't go? Should you still go? What if God is saying, hey, that relationship is toxic and unhealthy? What if God is saying, I want you to sacrifice and die to self and take up your cross and follow me? But Facebook said, Twitter said, Instagram said, how will I know the voice of God? God looks in his eyes and says, go. I'm not arguing about this. I'm God, you're not. Go. He does give a little bit of a pep talk, which I've always found fascinating. He says, this man, now he's talking about Saul, to Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. End of pep talk. That's a little bit encouraging to Ananias. Oh, well, <laughs> if he's gonna have to suffer, great, I'll go, okay. I, the Bible never says that. The Bible never says that. But the reason this is fascinating, guys, we don't have room in our American version of God for God to say, go, you're gonna suffer, but go. It's gonna cost you. 
let go. You're gonna lose something that you find valuable, but go. It's gonna be risky. You might lose your life, but go. But see, as your pastor who loves you, I would be failing you. I want you to be ready on the last day when you look at your heavenly father to say, God, every time you told me to go, I went. Every time you asked me to move, I did. So God, here I am. I did my best in every moment to be faithful to whatever you asked me to do, even when it made no sense to me. So I'm, I'm gone. <laughs> Notice though, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother, Saul. I love that. I feel like right here we could learn a lot from Ananias. See, I think we tend to think of people who have not yet fully gone all in with God as the quote unquote enemy. Ananias is here and he already puts his hand on him. The same guy who's arresting and killing Christians. He puts his hand on him and he says, brother, Saul. Because Ananias has tapped into something that we sometimes struggle to tap into, and that is we are all desperately in need of God's grace. Not one of us, not one of us has earned it. Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, let's just make this clear, I love that, the Lord, you know, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. By the way, if you think that because of the Spirit, you'll never need physical things, you don't read your Bible well enough. As soon as he's baptized, he eats and he gains his strength. God gave you food for calories. He's a good God. Most of it tastes good. Thank you, Jesus. Every once in a while, there's green things with leaves on it. <laughs> but it's all part of the process, right? But listen. This Easter, we're gonna be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus through the resurrection of spiritually dead people. We're gonna hold a baptism Sunday. And I don't want anybody to wait till Easter. If you have never surrendered your life to Christ in baptism, then I wanna encourage you to do that anytime between now and Easter. Do it. We've already had 11 people do that this year at Kingsway Christian Church. It's an amazing thing. But on Easter, those who are inviting their friends and those who are making plans, and that's the day that they're gonna to choose to do it, we're gonna celebrate on Easter with the Baptism Sunday. And I wanna encourage you to join Saul, and we're gonna talk about this over the next few weeks, the presence of baptism in our lives, and what exactly does it mean, at least a little bit. We won't be able to scratch the surface on all of it, but we're gonna get into some of it. Now this is critical, because from this moment, Paul has something he's never had before, an advocate, a friend, a comforter. Those are all the words used to describe the Holy Spirit. And Paul is now filled with the Holy Spirit and he goes out and you know what he finds if you read the book of Acts? Nobody trusts him. Well, duh. He's been arresting Christians, throwing them in prison. And listen, when you come to Jesus Christ and you finally get to the place where you realize you can't save yourself, what you may find is if you've been living a broken life, what you may find is if you've made some poor decisions, those things have consequences. But God's view of you is not the same. God's view of you is now you are one of his children. You are now in him through Christ. And that's critical. What ends up happening and what needs to happen more in churches is a guy named Barnabas comes alongside Saul and starts to stand with him. He starts to lend the credibility of his own name for Saul's name. 
And he says, look, I vouch for this man. And the people start to trust Saul because of Barnabas. Because Barnabas took his time, his energy, his effort. Everybody's wondering if Saul's a real dude. Is he the real deal? And one guy said, I'm gonna find out. I'm gonna find out. I'm gonna give up my life, pour into his life so that I can find out. Listen, if we ever wanna become the church that Jesus longs for us to become, it's gonna take more Barnabases in the world doing what Barnabas did. As Paul's life progresses, Paul and Barnabas, at first they travel around, they plant churches, they go visit those churches. Then as it goes on, Paul and Barnabas, imagine this, Christians fight. Paul and Barnabas having, and it says in the New Living Translation, a sharp disagreement. And we don't even know everything about that disagreement. We just know that their fight is so big that they decide they can no longer serve God side by side. That is crazy to me. I've never heard of that ever happening in a church in my life. Like it's, In all seriousness, in all seriousness. Paul ends up partnering with a guy named Silas and he goes and he plants more churches. Paul ends up being arrested. Now what's crazy is, and this is where I'm going to close for our last eight, 10 minutes or so. What's crazy is, as Paul plants these churches, the churches don't always believe in Paul. He shows up, he serves, he works, he gets the church going, he leaves, he goes to the next town and then he hears about what's happening in the church from some of the people he's left behind. They send a letter, a messenger, we have entire books based off this. Paul writes to the church of Galatia because they've fallen away from Christ and they've fallen back to works. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and tries to remind them of what it means to walk in light and not in darkness. Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians and the whole reason he's writing it is because the church, it's like they don't even know who Jesus is anymore. And these people have slipped into the church in Corinth, what he calls super apostles. These guys have shown up, they're like, I'm awesome. Look at my ministry. Look at my preaching. Look at all the great things that I've done. Who's Saul? What's he ever done? He hasn't even been around here lately. What, what, he's not even that good of a speaker. He's not even that good of a communicator. That's exactly what's happening. Go read Corinthians, the second Corinthians sometimes. And Paul is so fed up in the book of Corinthians that he starts to say, why in the world are you listening to these people? What have they ever done for you? When I was among you, all I did was love you. In fact, I wouldn't even let you pay for my expenses when I was there, and I had every right to ask you to do that. But I never wanted you to think that I was trying to take advantage of you. So I gave my heart to you, I gave my life to you, I gave everything I had to you, and you still don't trust me? And then he goes on, and he says, look, I'm not gonna boast, but then he does boast. It's, it's the most fascinating conversation. You, you think these guys are so amazing? And then he says this, and we have this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. He says, I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That was how the Jewish people made sure they didn't go over the law. The law said you couldn't do more than 40 lashes. So they would do 40 minus one, which meant 39 lashes. He said, yeah, five times I received that. Five times. You remember the passion of the Christ and the flogging? Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. 
I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. It's fascinating to me, first of all. Remember, Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. Jesus came to bring us to the Father. But Jesus also came to use us to take others to the Father. And remember, Jesus told Ananias, I'm going to reveal to Saul how much he must suffer for my name. And Saul is saying, it's true. <laughs> that prophecy, predictive prophecy was true. I have suffered unbelievably for his name. But here's the question. Why is Paul boasting? Paul is boasting because in spite of the fact that he used to be Saul, which meant big, he changed his name somewhere along the way to Paul, which means small. Somewhere along the way, Paul finally began to get it. I'm not that important. I'm not that relevant. God could raise up a rock to do this job if he needed to. But he chose me to suffer for his name. And he considers it an honor. He's not boasting to say, I'm awesome. He's boasting to say, God's worth it. He alone sits in unapproachable light. That was Paul who wrote that. He's worth it. He's the only one worth it. And here's the last point, the fourth point. Jesus came to take the weak things of this world and to make them strength. I was at a CIY uh, when I was a high school youth pastor. And after years of pouring my heart and my life into these students, I was seeing some fruit coming out. And we had this moment where the, the preacher that night, I don't remember who it was, I don't remember what he said, just like probably 10 years from now, you won't remember anything about the sermon. But if the Spirit does his work, you'll still grow closer to God and we all win. I don't remember anything it was, I don't remember who he was, I don't remember what he said, but I remember that night, the Spirit did something in our youth group. And kids started sharing a number of struggles. Some of them had parents who were faking their way through marriage. It was miserable behind closed doors, but in public, they looked great. Some of these kids were struggling personally, being crushed under the weights that they felt from school, from life, from their parents. One girl in particular had turned to an extremely immoral lifestyle because she had no presence of a mom or a dad in her life. One of the gentlemen confessed to the youth group that he struggled with same-sex attraction. The list went on and on and on. And I kind of stood back a little bit going, I gotta get this thing under control because all these kids are gonna go home and tell their parents about all the things that are said here and they're all gonna think I'm the worst youth pastor ever. And then I just realized in this moment, the Holy Spirit was trying to do something. He was trying to reveal weakness. And in a moment, I stepped up and I said, look, a lot has been shared here. But whatever your greatest struggle is, God intends to leverage it for strength. Confession time, you ready? I'm not gonna go as deep as maybe they went, all right? 
I am probably ADHD. I think we could probably take the probably out, right? <laughs> Some of you attend this church because you can relate and you like that. Others of you go, sometimes I just really struggle to figure out what in the world he's talking about. <laughs> My poor wife, okay? True story, true story. I've been reading a book this week and it was talking about how couples where one uh, or both of the couples have ADHD end in divorce at a significantly higher rate than everybody else. So I realize the stress on our staff, the stress on you, the stress on my wife, that my personality can create at times. And I know, everybody wants to send me an email, tell me how much you love me, because you've chosen this church, that's why you're here. But listen, I can't sit down and read a book for more than two minutes. As soon as I get one paragraph into a book, my brain is off in la la The only way I can read books is I do it audibly, and I have to do it while I'm doing something with my hands and my body because I have to keep my body busy enough. I tried to write a book with my friend, Rick Sudsbury, who I've talked about. I tried this a couple years ago. It took me a month, and I got three pages in. And I put a lot of hours into those three pages. It drives me crazy. Over the years, I've hurt people I've loved. I've offended some of you. I have done all kinds of annoying and stupid and sometimes sinful things because of my ADHD. I'm not saying that because I need an email. I'm okay with who God made me. But it's because, like Paul, I've come to accept the fact that sometimes God intends to make weaknesses strength. Now, when Paul is saying this, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 2 through 5, he's going through this to let us know that he's had some pretty amazing experiences that led to great weakness. Let me show you, unpack it, and make sense of everything I'm saying. 2 Corinthians chapter two. So Paul just got done talking about all these amazing things that he's done to suffer for Christ, and then he says, I know a man of Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I'll boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Now, the reason he tells you that, actually the context of the entire chapter tells you he's the man that was caught up. He's trying not to tell you he's the guy, but it's him. And the reason he doesn't want to tell you is because he doesn't want you to think of him as Saul, big. He wants you to think of him as Paul, small. And God allowed him to have a very unique experience where in some way, he was either in the body or out of the body. I don't know, God knows. But he was in the body or out of the body. He was in the presence of the Lord. And he saw things that were so beautiful and so amazing, they were inexpressible. And then he says, I'm not even permitted to tell you about them. Like, I can't even describe them, which also blows my mind when we talk about near-death experiences and everybody goes up to heaven and they see all these things and they all come back and write books about them and make millions of dollars and we're all supposed to believe that they're better than Paul and I don't get that. I don't get it. But that's another sermon for another day and you're already Googling it. So anyway, and I'm ADHD. But this is critical to get this. Why did, Paul, why did God call Paul up to heaven to see whatever it is he saw? Because that moment became an anchor for Paul's soul in the midst of the stonings and the whippings and the hunger and the shipwrecked and the abandon and then the hurt. He could always say, but I remember just a day that's coming. I remember that song they sang in heaven. I remember seeing the glory of the Lord. It was so beautiful. I remember, it's like I was there. 
Oh, it's like I was there. But see, there's a problem for Paul. Every time he thinks about what it is he saw and what it is he experienced, he becomes arrogant. And he says in verse seven, and I don't have this on the screen, but he says, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. And nobody knows exactly what he means. One sermon I listened to this week about this text, just trying to hear how other preachers have handled it, said he believes that God, uh, that, sorry, Paul actually tripped and fell and got a literal thorn in his flesh and he couldn't get it out. And it was maybe irritating and, and pussing and infected. And, and I was like, man, I, I, don't, I don't think this is a literal situation. Some have hypothesized a specific sin that maybe Paul had that was sexual in nature. The only problem is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he wishes all men were like him and they didn't struggle in that way. So I find it hard to believe that that was it. I read this great article once where a guy said he thinks it's Paul's pride. Because he got to see heaven and it was inexpressible, he can't really talk about it. He, he has this welled up like, I'm awesome. God let me do only something maybe 10 people in the entire Bible got to do. I got to do it. And so because of that, his pride was in the way. And Paul knows he's not big. Paul knows he's small. He knows he's nothing. He knows that according, like, compared to what he saw, he's nothing. But if he goes around and talks about it and shares it, everybody will think he's something when he's really nothing. And so Paul says, I don't even want to tell you that guy's name. I don't even want to name him for you because I don't want you to praise me. I want you to praise the one that I saw that I can't even tell you what I saw. I'm not allowed. And then he goes on and he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse eight. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take this away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Let me ask you a question. What weakness do you need to bring to Jesus? Most people, when they come to God, they feel unworthy. Some of you maybe arrogantly think he needs you on his team. You gotta work on that. But most of you feel unworthy. You feel unworthy to lead a life group. You feel unworthy to teach in kids' ministry. You feel unworthy to serve communion. You feel unworthy to whatever, fill in the blank. You feel unworthy to lead somebody else to Christ because you probably don't have all the answers to their questions. You just feel unworthy. And could it be that, could it be that whatever your greatest weakness is, is in fact a gift from God that makes you depend on him? Let's read this again. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. And God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That is such an overwhelming verse because what God intends to do through Jesus is to take the very things that are your excuse why you can't and say, yes, you can. He goes on. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and in insults and in hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I'll close with this. Years ago, I heard uh, Louis Giglio talk about the passion movement. If you know what that is, it's a Christian worship movement. 
And he was before a big radio, or not radio, sorry, big um, recording executive group and was trying to get them to sign them on. And he was walking on the beach and trying to rehearse his speech to give. And he felt like God stopped him in his tracks and said, Louie, you're nothing. And he said, ooh, that's good, God. I'm gonna use that. I'll use that. I'll, I'll go in. I'll say, look, guys, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm nothing. But if you invest in us, we could be something. He said, no, Louie, I'm not telling you to act like you're nothing. Louie, I'm telling you, you are nothing. Be you and let me use your weakness and my strength. And Louis went into that meeting and he said, guys, here it is. We got a small gathering of people. We're really nothing, but what we wanna do is we wanna lift up the name of Jesus. We wanna praise Jesus. We wanna lead as many people as we can to worship Jesus. And that's it. If you wanna sign us, you sign us. But honestly, I'm not sure we'll make you any money. I'm not sure we'll make much of this. And they signed him and you've, saying passion songs most of your life, if you've been a Christian for 10 years now, for most of that time. And I wonder what would change, what would change in your life if you were to realize that God is the one seated on his throne, Jesus is the radiance of God, and God intends to fill you with the presence of the Holy Spirit and turn you into a temple. What I want to do right now is I want to take us into communion and I want you to use this time, use this time to approach your heavenly father with whatever weakness is in your life and bring it to him. Let's pray. Father God, I want to pray right now for all the men, women, children in this room. God, whether, whether it's somebody fighting with a medical diagnosis that feels like weakness, whether it's somebody dealing with maybe a personality flaw like ADHD, or whether it's somebody in this room who finds themselves not knowing enough or maybe not strong enough, maybe not fast enough. Maybe they think they're too old to relate with teenagers or whatever it is. God, I pray right now that you would take our weakness and turn it into strength. That as we become men and women surrendered fully to you, that you would use us to lead others to yourself. God, I pray right now that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would stir and convict in our hearts to partner with you in transforming this world in whatever little way we can for you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.